For those of you who weren't here last week, we begin what will ultimately be a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but we're taking sort of a scenic route to get to that letter, examining the New Testament lessons that come in and around the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is the church that we know more about in the New Testament than any other church. They were founded in in Acts chapter 18, we looked at last week. Paul comes back to them here in Acts chapter 19, where he interacts with some we'll call them Christian-ish disciples, teaches in the synagogue. He rents out a a lecture hall for the church. He performs miracles, confronts demonic practices, sparks a town-wide riot. After he leaves, he then writes the letter to the Ephesians, but he also leaves Timothy in order to lead the church. And he writes a couple of letters to Timothy, giving instructions on putting that church in order. And then much later, John, the last surviving apostle, comes and ministers in Ephesus. John's letters are probably written from Ephesus until he gets exiled to the island of Patmos, about 50 miles off into the Aegean Sea from the coast of Ephesus, and writes the letter or the book of Revelation. And in that book, the Lord Jesus appears to him with a special message for the church at Ephesus in Revelation, commending them for their doctrinal and, and moral integrity, but warning them they were in danger of being unchurched because they had left their first love. So this series is going to mostly focus on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but we're going to try to wrap our arms around all of that in the process. So last week we started in Acts 18 with a kind of descriptive tour of the ancient city of Ephesus, starting at the the harbor on the west side, going down the main road called the Arcadian Way to the east side of the city where there's this huge amphitheater cut into the uh, hillside. There's off outside the city, the the temple of Artemis, and we saw other things in the process as well. But in Acts 18, Paul had visited the city for the very first time, and he told some in the synagogue, some presumably believers in chapter 18, verse 21, that he couldn't stay, but he hoped to return to them. And so in Acts 19, he's back. Let's start in verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, unto then, what, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It's evidence Paul had big plans for the city of Ephesus. On a prior missionary journey, about four or five years before this, he had intended to come to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit did not allow him to do it. God had a better plan. Back in chapter 16, verse 6, it says that he had passed through Phrygia and the region of Galilee, but was forbidden of the Holy Ghost to speak the word in Asia. That is, Paul wanted to turn toward Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit prevented that for a time. And then in chapter 18, Paul finally gets to Ephesus for the first time, but he's unable to stay. He has made a vow, and that vow includes having to return to Jerusalem. But he promises to come back. Paul's interest in Ephesus, I think, is based on the fact that the city is going to be the means to reach all of Asia Minor. And I think if that's what he's thinking, he's right. It worked. You can look down at verse 10. He continued there by the space of two years so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Down in verse 26, it says that moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Keep in mind, when you read the word Asia in Acts, it is referring to the Roman province, which was called, called Asia at that time. It covers roughly the western third of what we now call the landmass of Asia Minor. Ephesus with a population of about 250,000, was the crown jewel of the province of Asia. And by establishing a church at Ephesus, the gospel of Jesus could, could reach out, it could travel throughout the region, getting to faraway places that Paul himself wouldn't travel. For example, we know that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians and said that I've not seen you face to face. That is, through his work at Ephesus, he had prepared men who went out and they made it to Colossae and started a church there. And so that's how this work is going to spread. And it's very typical of Paul preparing other Christians to serve so that the ministry of Christ would continue and expand beyond himself. Last week we read in Acts 18 how when Paul left Ephesus after that very brief stay, his friends, that married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, stayed behind in Ephesus. And while he was gone, a man named Apollos came. And Apollos was a, a powerful preacher and even described as being fervent in the spirit. But his knowledge only reached through the Old Testament promises of the Messiah, even to John's declaration about the Messiah is coming. But he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until Aquila and Priscilla brought him in and taught him those things. And that's because Paul had prepared them for that work. And as Acts 19 opens, now Apollos has gone to Corinth and Paul comes back to the city. 
and he immediately encounters an odd group of men. They appear to be disciples in verse 1, although disciples of whom is, is sort of in doubt at this point because they're not rebellious or antagonistic in any way, and yet they're not really Christians in the sense that we think of Christian either. Look at, look at the first few verses. It came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not even so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. What gave Paul a clue that there was a problem here? Well, I think the answer can be found in the question that he asks. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? That does not mean, have you received the Holy Spirit since the time that you believed, an idea which has sparked some very strange Pentecostal ideas about getting a second blessing at some point later in your life. But what he's asking is, since you are believers, have you received the Holy Spirit? Or the, the, probably the best way to translate this is actually, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's kind of an odd question because the Apostle Paul knows every believer in Jesus has received the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8 verse 9, Paul asserts, if any man be or if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul wrote later to these same Ephesians, telling them that at the time they believed, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance. If a person does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling him, that person is not saved. Yet, we cannot look at at the external of a person to know whether internally they have the Holy Spirit. All we can see is what's on the outside. And apparently there was something about these men that suggested to Paul that they weren't quite the disciples that they were passing themselves off to be. Have you, have you ever met someone and it is clear when you meet them like, eh, something's not quite right here. We know that the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is an attitude of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Perhaps these 12 men were lacking that. And by the way, there's 12 men when it says down at, um, in verse uh, 7 that all the men were about 12. These aren't 12 years old. They're, they're 12-year-olds. These are, these are 12 men, 12 adult men. You know, but maybe they were, they were missing those, that, that fruit of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit provides spiritual gifts for believers to be used within the assembly for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Maybe these men displayed no particular spiritual gifting. We know the Holy Spirit is the, the master teacher who opens our minds to the word of truth of Jesus Christ. And clearly these men were deficient in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. Whatever the reason is that, that caused Paul to think, well, something's not quite right here, the Apostle Paul can never be accused of being too timid to just confront things directly. So he asks a very bold question 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their astounding answer was, we've not even heard that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Paul's mind had to be reeling at that response. At the very least, every Christian ought to have heard of the Holy Spirit if at no other time than at the moment they were baptized after believing. Right? You are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul essentially asks, well, if you, if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, what happened when you were baptized? What, was, what were you baptized in? And their answer is, unto, we were baptized unto John's baptism. In their baptism, there was no mention of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was only John's baptism. That is John the Baptist. Not that these men were baptized by John the Baptist himself. Likely they were baptized by someone who had been baptized by John the Baptist, or they were baptized by someone who was preaching the message of John the Baptist. Because if these men had been baptized by John the Baptist, who has been dead now, for about 25 years at this point, if they'd been baptized by him, it would have been evident. It's evident. They would have known more than they do. Also, if they'd been baptized by John the Baptist, it's John's baptism was perfectly acceptable for membership in the Lord's church, but these guys are going to be re-baptized in verse five. So just like Apollos last week, We have to remember that we're in this time of transition, not transition from one way of salvation to another way. There is only one way of salvation. There's only ever been one way of salvation. There's not one way to be saved in the Old Testament and another way to be saved in the New Testament. There's only one way of salvation. It's always been the same. It is by faith in God's promise of salvation by faith. Christ. In the Old Testament times, saints were saved by looking forward to the promises of God through the Savior who was to come to be fulfilled and trusting those promises, believing in them. They were saved. In the New Testament, we look back on the promise of God having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And by faith in those promises, we are saved. But That's the way it's always been. Even as far back as Genesis in the description of Abraham, it says Abraham believed and that belief was accounted to him for righteousness. He was saved by faith. There's only one way to be saved, by faith in Jesus the Messiah. The difference between Old Testament faith and New Testament faith, where where there is a difference is that we have come to know more about Jesus as time has passed. They had the promise that God would send a Savior, and we know that God has sent that Savior. And it is Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross and was raised again to give us everlasting life. This is a time of transition in Acts. You could have folks who trusted the promises of God and yet not, had not learned that those promises had been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Now, whether or not that's a description of these men, frankly, I struggle with. I struggled with it back when we were preaching through Acts. I've struggled with it again now. Um, 
it's tempting to say that they, just like Apollos in Acts 18, were essentially Old Testament saints. But there are some clues that that's not the case because in Acts 18, the description of Apollos' ministry is that the Holy Spirit was powerful in it, but the Holy Spirit's entirely missing from these men. And maybe that's what led Paul to his question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And their answer, we don't even know that we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit, sort of brings the real issue to the forefront. They had been baptized. They had gotten wet, is what they'd gotten, in the name of John the Baptist. But they obviously weren't disciples of John the Baptist himself being baptized by John the Baptist because they didn't know that he had pointed forward to Jesus. So just as a quick reminder, let's remember who John the Baptist was. In the Old Testament, God had promised a forerunner or someone who would, we'd call it nowadays an advanced man, somebody who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that was John. Luke's gospel begins not with the birth of Jesus, but with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And he goes and he he declares the coming of the Messiah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so before Jesus' own ministry began, John was, was preaching. John's gospel, John the Apostle's gospel, says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And many people came and they heard him preach. And his message was essentially, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He insisted on genuine repentance before he would baptize anybody. As a matter of fact, he looked at the self-righteous Pharisees who came to him at one point because he was popular and he called them a brood of vipers or you sons of snakes. He refused to baptize them. Shockingly, John also refused or tried to refuse to baptize Jesus. When Jesus came, John said, I need to be baptized by you. But in order to set a standard of what is right, in order to be our example in all things, Jesus told John, this this is the way that it needs to be. And Jesus was baptized by John. And when he baptized Jesus, he saw the heaven open, the spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove and the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And from that time on, John's message gained even more clarity. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. That is, in other words, I've been preparing the way, but he is the way. And the way is here. He said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He said, I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God because I saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. He points to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John's message is a message that points to faith in Jesus. If these men were really disciples of John, they would have known those things. Furthermore, it is unthinkable that true disciples of John the Baptist wouldn't know more than what these men know. They know nothing of the Holy Spirit. But John was very clear in his teaching of the Holy Spirit. He said he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. He also even said before that, 
Um, in Luke 3, verse 16, it says, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That happened on the day of Pentecost. These men knew nothing about the promise of the Holy Spirit. They didn't really grasp the teaching of even John the Baptist. And so in short, if these men are Old Testament saints, at the very least, they need to know that the promise of God has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Their Savior has come. And so Paul preaches to them about Jesus, starting with what they knew, or at least what they were, were open to. Look at verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So when you look there at verse 4 and you see that Paul preaches to these men, John verily baptized, that is, it's true, John baptized, but his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And not just of repentance, it was baptism in regard to repentance and faith. He says that they should believe on him which would come after him. That's on Christ Jesus, or the Messiah Jesus. Remember we were just saying that salvation has always been the same, whether it's looking forward to the Savior or looking back on the Savior. The call of John the Baptist, according to the Apostle Paul, is not different from the message today. John's message was repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Repentance and faith always go together. To repent literally means to change your mind. You change your mind about yourself. You change your mind about sin. You change your mind about God's son, Jesus. You need to change your mind about yourself so that you recognize you are not good. You are a rebel against God's commands. You need to change your mind about sin so that you no longer desire to revel in that wrongdoing, to, to live your life for sin, but you're sorry for what you're done, you've done and your mind has changed and you set a new direction and you change your mind about Jesus. He's not just a good story. He's not just a, a wise teacher. He's not just a name to invoke when you're mumbling prayer over your meal. He's the son of God. He's the savior of men. He's the promised Messiah who died on the cross and rose from the the grave in order to save you from God's wrath. And don't forget that wrath part. The message of John the Baptist was very much focused on the wrath of God, right? Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the time of God's coming is, is close. He liked to use the example John liked to use the example of a, an orchard full of trees, right? We're all trees and God's going to come and inspect those trees that are fruitful and those trees that are useless. And he's going to prepare to cut down the ones that are not fruitful and throw them into the fire, John says. In fact, John's, John pictures, that as, pictures it as the ax is already laid to the tree. Like if you picture a, a man who is a, um, operating an orchard and he sees a tree that's useless and he gets his axe and he sets it against the tree and he's just preparing for that time where that tree is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Y'all, this is the gospel. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. It is not designed to save you from your social problems or to fix all your health problems or to be the cure for all your financial problems. Being saved through faith in Jesus isn't even like the the mechanism for self-help to make you a happier person. The gospel is the means of being saved from the wrath of God, which is coming. It is in this impending judgment of God. You are going to be face to face with him. And without Jesus, you are facing everlasting punishment. Jesus is the only way to be saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's glory. And the message of the gospel needs to be declared to the world. Paul wants to come to Ephesus so it would be declared in Ephesus and so that it would be declared outside of Ephesus. But it also needs to be declared right here. The people in this room right now, we need the gospel. Look, these 12 men, when you read this text, they identify themselves as disciples. They're attached to this group of believers in Ephesus and they apparently fit in pretty well. I'm certain we have people here today who have done the same thing. They identify with the congregation and they feel like they fit in pretty good and it doesn't seem troublesome to us at all. And yet at the same time, you've not repented of your sins. You've not believed on Jesus for salvation. You're You're comfortable adding church attendance as like this accessory to your life, but that life is showing no fruit of the Holy Spirit, no evidence of obedience to the Lord. And so even now, the acts of God's wrath is already sitting there because the moment is soon coming when your life is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And it doesn't matter how comfortable you are sitting in this place with these people. You understand that identifying yourself with Christians is not enough. The only hope you have is that you are identified with Christ himself. Far too many people place their faith and trust in calling themselves Christians. Christendom has never saved a soul. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. Trust Jesus alone. And these men do, verse 5, when they'd heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. When these men heard more than just about John, they heard the promise of God has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. They were gladly baptized in the name of Jesus, whoever Whoever had baptized them unto John's baptism had only gotten them wet, right? John himself was authorized by God to baptize, but you'll never find where John somehow passed that authority on to someone else. The only place you'll see the authority to baptize being passed to anyone other than John is at the end of the Gospels when Jesus gives it to his church. Go out and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. If you've repented of your sins and trusted Jesus for salvation, baptism is an outward sign 
of the inward change that you identify with him. He came to be baptized by John the Baptist in order to set an example for you to follow. He gave authority to his churches in order to give you a place to follow that example. If you're saved by his grace, baptism in his name is what should follow. Now, I won't say that the stuff in verse 6 is necessarily going to follow for you, not exactly the same way. Repentance and faith lead to, uh, you're, you're, you're saved by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, and then you're baptized in his name, and you're, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You will get some gifting of the Holy Spirit in order to use within the assembly. But I don't anticipate, like in verse 6, that it's going to be the gift of tongues and prophecy. When it comes to these miraculous gifts, like the gifts of tongues or the gifts of healing. The apostles had the ability to lay hands on individuals and bestow miraculous gifts on them. That's what Peter and John did when they went up to Samaria. That's what the apostle Paul does here. In verse 6, Paul lays his hands on them. That's Unless you have had one of the apostles of the New Testament lay their hands on you, you will not convince me that you've got one of the miraculous spiritual gifts. And yet the gifts of the Spirit that are not in what we consider miraculous, gifts of, of mercy and, and generosity and teaching and hospitality and ministry, and there are many others that are beneficial to the service of Jesus Christ. We're called to use our gifts within the assembly. And you can be sure Paul's going to do this in verse 8. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. If you recall, Paul had visited that synagogue in Ephesus on his first trip to Ephesus. In chapter 18, verse 19, he went in and it says he reasoned with the Jews. They even asked him to stay and reason with them some more. And he'll, he promised, well, I'll be back if I can. Well, he could. And he came back and they got more than they bargained for in the process. They can only handle the Apostle Paul for about three months, which actually is a pretty good time considering the way many synagogues treated him. After three months, he is forced to leave by the opposition. I imagine that was an incredible three months. The word disputing there is actually the word for dialogue. He engaged in back and forth discussion. It doesn't necessarily mean disputing like arguing the way we think of, although it's not difficult to imagine since Luke describes him speaking boldly that the conversation was, let's say, earnest on both sides. Yet Paul not only engaged in dialogue, it says he was persuading. That means to convince by argument or to convince with evidence. And that's our calling, to, to talk with people, to show people the evidence, to not be timid or, or cowardly when it comes to proclaiming God's word. Even if we recognize that some will be offended by it. Some will be put off by it. Look at verse 9. But when divers were hardened and believed not, 
but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Some became hardened. That word became hardened is the imperfect passive tense, which suggests that this hardening of their hearts was a process. In other words, the more Paul preached about Jesus, the more hard-hearted they became about Jesus. That's frightening when you think about it in terms of the folks I was talking about just a few moments ago who are comfortable here among Christians hearing about Jesus and all the time in the process becoming more hard-hearted to the gospel as they hear it and reject it. Luke didn't say they just became hardened. He also says they did not believe. Did not believe is actually the the same root word that's used for persuading in verse 8. So Paul went in with persuasive arguments. He went in with convincing arguments, but they refused to be persuaded. They refused to be convinced. They were actively disobedient. Sometimes this word's used in the sense of to refuse to comply. This reinforces the truth that the gospel is not just an offer to accept. The gospel is a command to be obeyed. I want you to understand this because the people who think that they are on the fence about Jesus need to understand there is no fence. There is no middle ground. You either repent of your sins and entrust your life to him through faith or you are being actively and rebelliously disobedient. You are rejecting God's command. You are refusing to comply. And don't imagine that, oh, well, I, I might just change my mind about this later because Luke's description is the more they heard, the more hard-hearted they got in regard to Jesus. The members of the synagogue in Ephesus who rejected the gospel not only got more hard-hearted and disobedient, Luke says they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. Remember, early Christians did not call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And Luke is saying that this evil speaking about the way is that they started to denounce Christianity before everyone. And Paul's only recourse at that point was to separate the believers from those who were denouncing Christ in the synagogue. He takes them out of the synagogue, but he has to take them somewhere. And I just, I love how he does it. He no longer has them attend the typical Jewish meetings, but he was going to have to find an alternative place to meet. And it says in verse nine, he started disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, that word disputing is the same word for, for dialogue Luke used up in verse 8, right? I think disputing is a, a good indication maybe of the way it was at the synagogue, but it, in these Christian meetings, it's more the sense of reasoning. But the other thing I love is the school of Tyrannus is almost certainly one of those lecture halls in Ephesus that we talked about last week. Tyrannus was either a teacher who converted to Christianity and allowed Paul to use his facilities, or more likely the case, he was a, 
a teacher who rented out his lecture hall in off hours. What I'm curious about with this man is his name. Tyrannus means the tyrant. And I don't know whether that's a name his parents gave him or that's a name his students gave him. But the success of this separation and meeting place allowed Paul to remain in Ephesus for an additional two years after this. It seems he stayed in Ephesus for three years total and successfully spread the gospel to all they that dwelt in Asia, it says. Remember, that's describing that that province, the western third of, of Asia Minor. That is, strictly speaking, what the church is supposed to do. An assembly of the Lord Jesus is to infuse the surrounding area with the word of God, particularly the message of the gospel. And we do that by each of us communicating the gospel to people in our everyday lives. When the Apostle Paul later writes letters to, the, to a letter to the church at Ephesus, He's not writing to a group of people that he just heard about. He spent three years with them. He knows them personally, and because he knows them, he loves them, and he's not going to settle for Christian-ish disciples like those men up in verse 1. They were certainly part of the church at Ephesus, And Paul's goal for the church at Ephesus is that all the disciples there would know Christ fully in order to declare him boldly. 